0: Well, good evening. Uh, My name is J.B. Hickson. This is uh, Not By Works Ministries, and we are streaming tonight uh, not from Plum Creek Chapel as we normally do on Wednesday nights, but I'm sure if you've been watching the news, you're aware of the big snowstorm that's kind of sweeping across the country, and it came over the Rockies and hit us, and so uh, roads are still pretty treacherous, and I know uh, out where we live, we got about eight inches or so, and closer to the mountain, they got uh, quite a bit more. So anyway... Once again, we were not able to meet live and in person, but instead we are going to have our midweek Bible study by live stream. So I know we always have quite a few people that join us uh, strictly by live stream, but tonight we'll have uh, even more as our usual in-house group is not able to make it out and I know many of them will be joining us by uh, live stream. So uh, I want to remind you too, those of you, we have quite a few that live stream uh, all of our uh, regular uh, services from Plum Creek Chapel. If you're ever in the Denver area, we'd love to have you come visit in person at Plum Creek Chapel uh, in uh, in Sedalia. So uh, keep that uh, in mind. Now, uh, tonight as we get started, we're going to uh, continue our look at how to read and understand the Bible. It's basically a, uh, a fundamental Bible study methods uh, class, but we're doing a lot of interaction and a lot of uh, uh, Q&A and just kind of taking it slow as we look at Uh, the best way to correctly handle uh, the Word of God. And I want to start uh, with a couple of quick announcements about our ministry. In fact, I want to take a moment to just highlight a couple of things uh, tonight, since we don't have uh, a live audience in the room, uh, and uh, there won't be any questions in that regard. I've got a little bit more time, and I thought I'd take advantage of this uh, for just a moment or two to mention some announcements. So we always remind you of our Tuesday podcast, Every Tuesday, Uh, I am on the Christian Underground News Network, and yesterday our podcast topic was Bible Prophecy, Current Events, and Evangelism. And wow, what a wonderful hour-long discussion that was with uh, Curtis Chamberlain. And I encourage you to check that out and listen to that if you haven't already. Uh, You can go to the Not By Works website and uh, click on Resources and then Podcasts. Or if you have the Not By Works app, don't forget to download uh, the free app, by the way. Just search for uh, Ministry One on uh, your app store. Look for that little purple cross that you see uh, circled there. And once you've downloaded it, uh, you can follow the instructions at Not By Works uh, website and how to install it and set it up with Not By Works Ministries. But either way, whether you're on the app or just on any podcast provider, Apple, Google, Pandora, Spotify, you name it, uh, we're there and uh, look for Not By Works Ministries. And I really encourage you to listen to that uh, interview yesterday. Really kind of ties together why we believe Bible prophecy is so critical and how that relates to the Great Commission and evangelism and how we can share Christ with others. Also, I want to remind you of our ongoing series on What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of the end times. Uh, those are available on by video. Uh, or as a podcast, uh, totally free. You can check those out at notbyworks.org. And by the way, I haven't mentioned this in a long time, but I encourage you to sign up for the Not By Works uh, newsletter. We have several thousand people on our list, and it's just a great way to uh, stay in touch with what's going on at Not By Works. Every time we maybe post a new video or have a special conference or speaking engagement, or maybe we have something special going on at our home church, Plum Creek Chapel, Uh, we'll send out reminders. I'll send out... Uh, not a lot from Not By Works, maybe one a week. Uh, in fact, this one that we sent out today was the first one in two or three weeks. So it just kind of ebbs and flows depending on uh, what's going on with our ministry. <clears throat> and it's just a great way to stay in touch with us and stay connected to all of the, uh, the great resources available uh, through Not By Works Ministries. And then finally, you know, we're talking about this idea of how to read and understand the Bible. And I thought, I want to mention... And actually, I got an email that kind of reminded me of this and made me think, you know, I really need to mention this. I haven't mentioned it, I don't think, at all in the 12 sessions or 11 sessions that we've had before tonight. But we at Not By Works, we have put together a formal uh, sort of academic uh, Bible study methods course, and it's uh, completely self-paced, self-contained. You can go at your own pace, Uh, but it's, uh, you know, seminary level. Uh, Teaching, You know, I taught hermeneutics, which is the technical term for Bible study methods for many, many years, both at the college and uh, seminary levels. And so I've put this course together from all the materials that I've uh, used. Of course, a lot of this same content you're getting in this midweek study, but we're not kind of coming at it quite as deeply and detailed. It's more of an interactive uh, lay level study. So if you'd like to dig a little deeper into something you're interested in, uh, I encourage you to go to our website. And uh, let me tell you how to get there. If you go to the website here and, uh, and you click on uh, these highlight carousels here, we're always highlighting several things. Uh, uh, just kind of scroll through them until you get uh, to the one that talks about uh, the uh, Bible Study Methods course. And uh, naturally, when I went to the website here, it was already cycling through. But here it is, you, you find this one and you click on it and it takes you to a page on our website that tells you everything you need to know about this course um and uh you know it's it's got a 38 page study guide or 24 detailed lessons with reading assignments recommended textbooks a lot of video and audio lectures you work at your own pace but here's the best part if you decide this is something for you and you want to take the course uh, we've uh, created an articulation agreement with cornerstone bible institute and frankly i know there's some other bible colleges out there that would also accept Uh, credits for this course Uh, and so if you decide hey this i really enjoyed this i'd like to further my education you can always uh, take online classes at one of these uh, other institutes and really dig a little deeper into the word of god so check that out Uh, again it's uh you know it's it's not for everybody but i just wanted to mention it that uh, it's there we've got i think five uh students right now not by works of folks that are Uh, across the country that are participating in it and I'm available to answer questions and uh, dialogue a little bit as you work your way through it. But again, it's totally self-paced. You don't have to show up at a class or show up online at a certain time. We just give you the material, well organized with the study guide and you work your way uh, through it. So uh, with that, uh, I'm excited about our continuing study of figures of speech. Which is what we've been uh, talking about. I'm a little disappointed, I have to say, that you know we were hoping this week to do a sort of a class exercise and some interaction. And those of you that were in house last week, and if you watched the video, you, or the live stream and video, you heard me refer to that. Um, we'll have to hold off on that for another week, Lord willing. Uh, if we're not preempted by more weather, we'll meet uh, in in person uh, next week. And I'll be live streaming uh, from uh, Plum Creek Chapel. So we'll hold off on that class exercise. But what it did do is it gave me uh, some time uh, yesterday and today to really kind of put some more thoughts together about figures of speech. And so I've actually updated uh, some of the information and I want to talk a little bit more about it. I'll go through uh, some uh, suggested resources on how to study figures of speech. And then we're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight uh, illustrating why figures of speech are important. Uh, But before we get to that, let's uh, review our five steps in the Bible study process. It's been a while since we've uh, looked at these, but this is the paradigm that I use for how to study the Bible. Uh, Nothing magical about these five steps. You know, some other scholars might list six or seven. Some people might narrow it down to to three. Um, But I've found this to be a helpful uh, paradigm uh, through the years, and I've used it in classes for many, many years. So it starts with the Bible, and you study the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical uh, context. And so frankly, all that we've been studying for the last several weeks about figures of speech and other things and what we're going to be covering with the you know, continued look at the 24 basic rules for uh, Bible study, uh, all of that is part of step one in, uh, in my paradigm. You have to you know, get it right out of the chute before you can move down the steps and begin to compare Scripture with Scripture, for example. Because if you're not handling it correctly to begin with from a literal, grammatical, historical approach, then your connecting of the dots is going to be off. So, step one is kind of really what this course is all about, but I wanted to make sure uh, that we see the Bible study process in its bigger picture and uh, so that's what we mean by the five steps in the bible study process so step one is uh, is the lgh method the literal grammatical historical method then you compare scripture with scripture you cross-reference you see what the bible as a whole uh, has to say about a particular um, issue that that came up in your base passage that you started with and then at step three having done all of that you sort of begin to formulate a clear belief statement you articulate Uh, in writing uh, what you've concluded. So step three is where you document your conclusions, you might say. And for a lot of people, that's where they stop because at that point, in theory anyway, if you've done the process right, you've come up with the accurate interpretation of a particular uh, passage of Scripture. And by the way, I got great feedback from a lot of our online uh, viewers and and video viewers about last week's discussion about uh, singularity of meaning. And what a great... Uh, I loved last week, we had a great time, it was good discussion, I was energized and, uh, and I just uh, wished it could have kept going, in fact we did go a little bit long uh, last week. Uh, so I encourage you if you haven't watched uh, last week, which was uh, part 11 in this uh, series, go back and watch that. Um, but in theory, if you've, if you've done this correctly and you've arrived at the in, 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 you know, accurate interpretation, for a lot of people that's where it stops. You know They can sort of check a box and say, I looked at the scripture, I studied it in its context, I compared other scripture, made sure it's consistent with the teaching of God's word as a whole, and I made my conclusion, I'm done. But that's not what Bible study is all about. As we said, there are two more steps. And so you must then move on beyond the development phase of figuring out the interpretation, to the application phase or the implementation phase. And that's where you take what you've concluded and you use it to validate or invalidate truth claims from everywhere else in the world. Uh, That's step four. And then of course most importantly step five is you take what you've learned and you apply it to your own life because the goal of Bible study uh, is a changed life. So I know we've talked about that before but it's been a few weeks. And I know we're picking up new uh, viewers and listeners. A lot of people just listen to the podcast version, and so they're missing out on some of the, the graphics. But, you know, a lot of times if you're in the car or you're in a place where you can't sit in front of a screen for very long, the audio is, uh, is the next best thing. So, uh, so those are the five steps. Start with the Bible, compare Scripture with Scripture, formulate a clear belief statement, evaluate the world's truth claims through your conclusions, and then apply what you've learned your own life. So we talked about how the first three are development and the next final two steps are implementation or uh, as we were working through this material earlier in the series, I kind of uh, looked at it from a little different vantage point and said the first three steps are where you arrive at the meaning of the passage. The final two is where you come up with the application. And so going back to last week's discussion, while there's only one meaning, one correct meaning based on authorial intent and what God intended to communicate to us when the quill hit the sheepskin, there might be uh, innumerable applications as the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to build in uh, to our lives. And so we've, we've talked about that uh, quite a bit. So uh, we have been going through the 24 rules of interpretation. Uh, we've talked about several general principles of interpretation. I won't take the time uh, to reiterate those just for... Uh, the sake of time and you can always go back and uh, review those uh, from previous uh, videos but we shifted a couple of weeks ago into grammatical principles of interpretation uh, with number 14 and number 14 was when an inanimate object is described uh, used to describe a uh, inanimate uh, object sorry i'm stumbling here because i realized we actually started with grammatical principles on number 10. But last week we got into figures of speech, and these were the first grammatical principles of interpretation that relate to figures of speech. So let me try this again. Number 14 was when an inanimate object is used to describe a living being, the statement may be considered figurative. And when an expression is considered out of character with the thing being described, then the statement may be considered uh, figurative. And then we looked at number 16, We should interpret words of the prophets. This is dealing with prophetic literature, which we're going to get into more detail about down the road. But we should interpret them in in accordance with their usual literal historical sense, uh, unless for some reason the context uh, in which they are fulfilled clearly indicates some type of symbolism. So we introduced figures of speech uh, and uh, went through a number of Types of figures of speech. I do want to review those because I've added two or three more. I mean, I mentioned when we went through this last week that this is by no means a comprehensive list, but it's some of the more prominent figures of speech in the Bible. And uh, I talked about how, you know, figures of speech are common in every language. And the Bible is full of them Greek and Hebrew, uh, Old Testament and New Testament. So uh, I wanted to mention. For, for those that uh, are serious about studying the Bible and are maybe building a library, I highly recommend the uh, classic work by Bullinger called Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. And I can remember 30 uh, years ago, or let's see, 32 years ago now, uh, when I went to seminary for the first time, that was one of the must-have books. And so it's called Bullinger's Figures of Speech Used in the Bible. And it's a comprehensive, well-organized. It's about that thick uh, treatment of, of figures of speech in the Bible. And so, as I was reviewing some of those uh, things in preparation for tonight, I came across a couple of others that I thought I'm going to mention these because uh, even though they're not, they weren't on my first list, uh, they are prevalent enough in Scripture that it's worth uh, mentioning. So let's just go through these quickly. The ones that we've already talked about, and then we'll I'll highlight the new ones as they come up. And then I want to and get into some more detail about these figures of speech so we talked about an anthropomorphism is attributing human features characteristics or actions to god the example we used was isaiah 59 uh, of course there are many examples uh, and when we get to our exercise which we'll do next week uh, and when assuming we meet in person you'll, you're going to see that some of the examples that i give Uh, are an example of anthropomorphism. But the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Clearly, God is spirit. He doesn't have human flesh. He does not have hands or ears. This is an anthropomorphism. Uh, A euphemism is the use of a less offensive expression to indicate a more offensive expression to kind of be more polite. We talked about 1 Corinthians 11 where it uses the phrase fallen asleep as a euphemism for death. Then we mentioned hyperbole is another common figure of speech, which is when you use an exaggeration to make a point, to to really say more than is literally meant. And so Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount cautions the Pharisees, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Well, he wasn't uh, thinking anything about physical, literal trumpets here. What he was saying is don't brag about it, don't be showy about it, uh, that kind of thing. Amerism is uh, when we substitute two contrasting or opposite parts to kind of represent uh, the whole. And so we talked about Psalm 139, verse 2, Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. Lots of examples of these in uh, English. And by the way, I'm going to mention later tonight how a number of our common figures of speech, especially idioms in English, actually originated as idioms in ancient culture from the Bible, either the Hebrew culture, they were an idiom that we because of the influence of the Bible have carried over and made commonplace in our English language or in some cases the Greek uh, culture uh, from the first century. Uh, but uh, we see examples of merism in English like if someone says I searched high and low, well that's a merism, meaning they searched everywhere, everywhere they can think of, right? Uh, I talked about how the Bible begins with a uh, merism. In the beginning, God created the heavens uh, and the earth. In other words, God created everything. Uh, everything except the triune God is created. Uh, God, the, the triune Godhead is the only un, non-created eternal thing. There never has been a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time uh, when God doesn't exist. And so, when, we, when the Bible begins in the beginning, the beginning of what, time, God created the heaven and earth, meaning he created everything that's created. Um, sometimes people will refer to the body as my flesh and bone. Uh, sometimes people will describe uh, all the population as uh, young and old, you know. Uh, I think I mentioned that uh, in an announcement uh, at Plum Creek Sunday when we were talking about a, a come-together fellowship that we do periodically at our church uh, that we're having Sunday night. And I said, hey, come one, come all, it's, a, it's a, for young and old. Or all ages you know so young and old is a mar- example of merism and we we gave uh, several others uh, the next figure of speech i think we talked about this one also last week is a metaphor which is basically the most rudimentary kind of figure of speech it's just a simple comparison um, uh, and so for example when jesus says you are the light of the world uh, there in the sermon on the mount uh, talking in context there about israel of course the undertones of the sermon on the mount are that the Pharisees were kind of standing off in the background listening quite skeptically and quite frustrated at what Jesus was saying. And really a lot of what he says in Matthew 5 to 7, that section on the Sermon on the Mount, was pointed at them. But the, the crowds gathered on the hillside uh, needed to know that really their purpose, and it's true of the church today as well, was to be a light to the pagan Gentile world. So that's just a simple metaphor. Here's the first new one that I want to talk about uh, Uh, tonight and this is uh, what we call a paradox. Now I had honestly forgotten that really paradoxes are a form of figure of speech. Most of us know what a paradox is. It's basically some self-contradiction or something that seems contrary to logic Um, and in fact I had sketched out a Christmas message to do. I think I was going to do it Christmas Eve uh, on uh, Christmas paradoxes. I forget what I was going to title the message, but, uh, that's going to have to wait till next Christmas because of course I got sick and my family and many others in our church were sick over the holidays and missed, uh, a couple of weeks there. But anyway, so we know what a paradox is, but really a paradox is a form of, uh, of literary technique. It's a type of figure of speech. Um, and here's one example when Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. Well, wait a minute. How can it be both? It's a, it's a, co- a seeming contradiction. But paradoxes are a figure of speech that cause people to go just like I just illustrated. Wait a minute. What? What does that mean? And it co- it gets our attention and causes us to look a little closer and really figure out uh, what is being uh, said there. So watch out for paradoxes. They ought to catch your attention and the way to handle paradoxes is to dig deeper and say what's the real message behind this seeming uh, contradiction. We talked about metonymy last week. A metonym is when you substitute one word for a phrase or concept or another word that's associated with it. So uh, lips, for example, is a metonym in Matthew fifteen eight for words, right? Uh, these people honor me with their lips. Well, they weren't literally honoring Jesus with their lips. He's talking here about the self-righteous Pharisees. Uh, he's saying what they're saying. They give lip service. That's where that phrase comes from. Uh, but, but their actions are far from it. Their heart really isn't in it. So that's a, a metonym or it's an example of metonymy. Personification is when you ascribe human characteristics or actions to an inanimate object. So when Isaiah the prophet said, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. That's an example of personification. Here's another one that we haven't talked about before, but is a pretty common figure of speech to watch for in scripture. And and again, I I wanna mention that it may seem like we're spending um, more time than you might think we should on figures of speech. But studying the Bible begins with observation and really paying close attention to what the words on the page mean. And because there are so many figures of speech out there, uh, it's it's important to be able to identify them, recognize them, and handle them uh, correctly. So it really is a worthwhile uh, study. In fact, uh, another uh, great book I would like to recommend uh, is by Howard Hendricks, who was a professor of mine. I'm going to talk. About him here in a moment, but uh, his his uh, book he's with the Lord now. Uh, but his famous book, Living by the Book, has been used as a textbook in Bible study methods courses all across the country for colleges and seminaries even. I've used it in two or three different academic uh, settings. And in that book, he has an entire chapter on figures of the speech uh, on figures of speech. And we're going to actually borrow some material from him in a moment, and I'll give him credit when I do. But Uh, An apostrophe, and he mentions them, that's why I brought that up. Uh, An apostrophe is a figure of speech where the direct address of an absent or imaginary person or personified abstraction takes place. In other words, you begin to speak to something that's inanimate, sort of as a side note or in a digression or almost a parenthetical from what you're saying. For example, uh, Paul quoting Hosea here says, uh, after his br- brilliant uh, revelation about r- the resurrection and how va- you know vital the resurrection is. If there's no resurrection, then our faith is in vain, and he talks about the ultimate victory that the resurrection of the body uh, has. We talked about that actually Sunday. If you haven't watched our What Lies Ahead, I think it was part 44 something like that, but we talked about the s- reasons for the second coming, and we, we mentioned that. To, to resurrect the bodies of Old Testament saints at Christ's second coming. And so it's, it's so vital to God's plan of the ages that this mortal will put on immortality. But in that context, Paul says this, again, quoting the prophet Hosea, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, who's he talking to? Well, it's an apostrophe. It's a, it's, he's, he's addressing a concept, an, an, an inanimate object to make a point, right? In this case, to to reiterate the idea that death is no more, that the final victory over death has been won. Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave at the resurrection. Uh, Simile is one we already talked about, and most people know this just from their basic uh, English uh, comp classes that they uh, took. Uh, A comparison using like eras. So Psalm 1, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water like a tree there is a simile then you've got synecdoche this is a substitution of the part for the whole or the whole for the part Uh, so here o shepherd of israel you who lead joseph like a flock so joseph there is a synecdoche for israel joseph of course is uh, one of the 12 sons of jacob the patriarch who became israel whose name was changed to israel And uh, so sometimes the Old Testament prophets will single out a uh, son of Israel, a son of Jacob, and use their name as a synecdoche for the entire people of Israel. Uh, And so that's synecdoche. And then zoomorphism is attributing animal features, characteristics or actions to God. So an anthropomorphism is when we, you know, like the hand of the Lord or the ears of the Lord, human characteristics to God. The zoomorphism, similar idea, but it's animal characteristics. So, for example, the Lord will will roar from on high. Or when Jesus said uh, in Matthew 23, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've always wanted to gather you uh, under my wings, like a chicken uh, gathers her hen. So that's got a simile. But when he talks about my wings, that's a zoomorphism because of course, Jesus doesn't have wings. He's, a, he's uh, attributing animal features to himself. Uh, litotes, uh we talked a lot about this one, is when you emphasize a positive by denying it's negative. Uh, the idea here is uh, uh, you know, when you say things like uh, not bad, or uh, that was no small feat, that you know, um, he's no ordinary man. Uh, he's not the cleverest person I know, that kind of thing it's it's what you're really doing is emphasizing uh, the opposite and uh, I think we talked about this last week one of uh, one of uh, the people present uh, had a I think it was Jeff had a great uh, observation that it not necessarily I probably should have changed this it's not necessarily positive or negative it's basically empo- emphasizing the opposite right uh, so you could in the case of he's not he's not the smartest person in the world you're you're denying the positive by denying the negative. I mean, by emph- to emphasize the negative. Let me say that again, you're denying the positive to emphasize the negative. So basically it's just, anytime you see the word not, uh, think about uh, the fact, could this be a litotes? Now sometimes, uh, "it not just means not. I'm not going to church tonight because the roads are closed, you know. Uh, that's not a litotes, that's just a negative statement. Uh, but in cases like this, uh, for example, in Acts 27, no small tempest beat on us, Paul said, as he was on the seas. Uh, that's meaning, well, no, it was a great storm. It was a very powerful storm. So, um, so we'll, uh, we're going to come back to that. I've got in the exercise that we're going to do, Lord willing, next week. Um, it's the kind of thing you can't really do by live stream because I don't have any live Uh, Interaction. If I uh, was a little bit better with technology or had an AV team, perhaps we could do some uh, some type of YouTube or Facebook live stream where I could see chats and try that. But that's above my pay grade at this point. Uh, So uh, we save the exercises and that kind of interaction for those that are in house live. So hopefully we'll do that next week. But I think it'll be instructive uh, when we look at several more examples of litoties. There's one in particular in the Book of Revelation that really clarifies an otherwise very confusing passage that has led to a lot of bad interpretation through the years because people failed to recognize that a litotes was being employed there, a figure of speech. Um, another one that I added, and we did talk about this last week, but um, uh, I kind of mentioned it as a, not really in the class of figures of speech. Well, I want to uh, clarify that. An idiom is, in, its, in a sense, a figure of speech, but it's not a universal figure of speech that's true in all cultures. Idioms, by their nature, are particular to a you know are peculiar to a particular group of people. Okay, and so um, you know we we get a lot of our English idioms from the Bible, and um, you know but but then there are also idioms, and this is what we're more concerned with. Um, you know, if you look up idioms in the Bible, most Of the time it's going to take you to examples of common English idioms today, uh, like, you know, apple of my eye, or uh, let me catch my breath, or let me, you know, this is a drop in the bucket, that originated from the Bible. And that's kind of an interesting study, too. I might mention a few more of those here in a second. But what we're concerned with in this study of how to read and understand the Bible is when. There are certain phrases that are used uh, in the Bible that are idiomatic in the say in the Hebrew culture of the Old Testament, and mean nothing to us. So we have we need to do a little digging, you know. And so a lot of bad theology and bad Bible interpretation has uh, been born out of a failure to recognize this as an idiom, and what it really means is such and such. Um, so uh, let me mention so, so the example that I have on the screen here is uh, uh, in judges 15 verse 1, Samson said, "I will go into my wife in her room." Well, what does that mean? In Hebrew, that's just a way of saying I'm going to consummate, right? Uh, we're going to have relations together. Uh, but the, the Hebrew idiom is, I'll just go into, my, into her room," is the idea. Uh, here are a couple other interesting, uh, idioms that you may or may not uh, recognize came from the bible but we use them a lot i mentioned uh, let me catch my breath which of course means you know give me some time Uh, uh, job was questioning the purposes of his suffering and he said to god he would not let me catch my breath but would overwhelm me with misery so uh, interesting isn't it that that phrase catch my breath in english comes from You know the Hebrew scriptures and and frankly one of the oldest books in the Old Testament Job Um, a drop in the bucket which of course means a very small insignificant amount. Um, And uh, when you go to Isaiah chapter 40 uh, Isaiah was uh, the prophet was talking about God's sovereignty and he says surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. And boy, what a great reminder uh, that God laughs when these Luciferian, you know, global elitists are trying to take over the world. Um, Isaiah reminds us, no, they're just a drop in the bucket. They're nothing. God can just brush them aside because God is sovereign. Uh, Or the apple of of one's eye. Israel is called the apple of God's eye. Psalm 17. the, the psalmist himself asks for God's protection, saying, keep me as the apple of your eye. It just means something very dear, you know. Um, so there are other, uh, you know, uh, idioms that we use uh, in English that uh, we might more readily recognize as coming from the Bible, like casting the first stone. Uh, Jesus said he was without sin, let him cast the first stone. Um, you know, when we talk about by the skin of your teeth, uh, that's a Job 19, verse 20. Um, uh, when we talk about uh, taking someone under your wing, that actually you know, is the one I mentioned earlier where Jesus says that in Matthew 23 and it comes from the Old Testament, Psalm 17 and several other psalms. But it means you know, care for them, take, take special attention to them, take them under your wing. Uh, a big one that I'm sure you've all heard of is the handwriting on the wall, right? You know, you're trying to wait for a sign, and you're, you know, you're wondering. I'm just waiting for the handwriting on the wall, or I, I, can see the handwriting on the wall, right? I can see clearly what this, what, what's happening, or what, what this means. Well, of course, that comes from Daniel, when God, the finger of God, actually wrote on the wall. So we use that phrase handwriting on the wall, but comes from uh, Scripture. The idea of something set in stone comes from Exodus. Uh, A good Samaritan, well today that's an idiom in English and and probably in many other uh, cultures as well for someone who does something nice uh, unexpectedly. Um, uh, The whole idea of extending an olive branch, where does that come from? Uh, Well, it comes from Genesis and the flood. Um, uh, Missing the mark. Well that comes from the New Testament concept of sin, hamartia means to miss the mark. So you kind of get the idea but those are a few uh, idioms just as a side note that I thought uh, it's interesting to point out and there are many more that uh, that we use that someone in another culture might or might not understand what we mean for example when we say I've seen the handwriting on the wall especially if it's a a pagan culture that really has not been evangelized or doesn't have access to Bibles as readily as we do. Uh, so, but we, we adopted those idioms uh, from, you know, from the Bible, or we, we, they originated from the Bible. So with that review, coupled with a mixture of a few new figures of speech that I wanted to bring into play, uh, we want to ask the question, how can you discern whether a text is intended to be taken literally or figuratively? and there are some general rules and principles. Um, In other words, there is a methodology of how to study the Bible. We've been going through 24 uh, rules and we're through whatever it was, 15 or 16, and and kind of digressing now as a subheading under rules about figures of speech. Uh, And most of these are not complicated. They're pretty basic and they make sense when you think about it. But I wanted to introduce these 10 rules for discerning the literal versus the figurative meaning uh, by uh, returning once again to Howard Hendricks and his great book, Living by the Book. Highly recommend it. It ought to be on your shelf, along with Bollinger's Figures of Speech. But uh, he, and I can remember him doing this kind of thing in class. He was just a, a consummate uh, lecturer, just captivating, and just had a way of communicating. If you ever ever heard him speak, again he's with the Lord now, uh, you you know what a gifted communicator he was. But I'm going to read for you the introduction that he gives in his book to why it is important to understand figures of speech. So it goes like this. An old, old man sat before his twelve sons. His eyes had failed, but his insight had not. And knowing that his time was drawing near, he wished to pronounce his vision of each of his sons' future. They stood waiting, respectful in their silence. Finally, the Ancient One spoke, "'Come close, my sons. Listen carefully to what your father tells you.' The gathered successors leaned closer, straining to hear. Robert, the oldest, occupied a central position. It was to him that the wheezing voice spoke first. Robert, you were the first, my pride and joy, but you are boiling water and you shall be first no longer. The young man's face fell, fighting back shame and rage, but he dared not reply. The old man was continuing without a pause. Stephen and Lawrence, you are thieves and murderers. To you I leave no blessing, only a curse. John, you are a lion's club and so you will rule, but someday you will wash your clothes in wine. Zachary is a seaport where ships will find harbor. Ian is nothing but a wild mule satisfied with anyone who feeds him. He will spend his days in forced labor. Daniel, you're a snake lying in the road. You will strike at your brothers and be their judge. George, you're a bandit. You will rob and be robbed and live in uncertainty. Alan loves the choicest of meats, but he will spend his days cooking, not eating. Nathan is a deer on the run. His words will leap and dance. Jonathan, you are my tree along the cool river bank. You will grow and prosper and shade all your brothers. To you will come the blessings of my fathers and through you will pass the blessings to my descendants. Bradley, my last, is a vicious wolf, hungry and wild. All day you will kill and all night you will devour. He finished abruptly. And no sound could be heard but the droning of flies. No one moved. Each son brooded on the words given to him. They failed to notice that the rattling patriarch, his words at an end, had dropped his head on his chest and sighed his last. So Hendricks asks, well, what are we to make of this biblical tale? That's right, biblical tale. This is quintessential Howard Hendricks providing a loose reconstruction or paraphrase of Genesis 49 when Jacob summons his 12 sons and prophesies the future of each one's lineage. You know, If you read the account, you're going to notice some pretty odd descriptions in God's Word uh, assigned to several of them. Judah is called a lion's whelp. Zebulun is a haven for ships. Issachar is a strong donkey. Dan is a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path. Naphtali is a doe let loose. And Joseph is a fruitful bow by a spring. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. So again, what are we to make of these descriptions? Are we to take them literally? If not, why not? And how do we know when Scripture is Actually, representing reality, and when it merely describes reality using some kind of figure of speech. And that's where the issue of figurative language comes into play when it comes to interpreting Scripture. You know, we're all familiar with figures of speech, we all use them routinely. You know, someone might say, I could have died of embarrassment. Well, I mean, that's a figure of speech. That's a hyperbole. They didn't mean literally they're going to die. It means they were very embarrassed. Or someone might say, I guess I'll have to face the music. Well, that's an idiom, meaning I'm going to have to take responsibility and suffer the consequences. Uh, someone might say, uh, so-and-so is mad as a hornet. Well, that's a simile. Not says nothing about actual hornets. It's just saying that person is particularly mad, like a hornet, right, when you stir up a hornet's nest. There's another figure of speech. Uh, you know, we could go on. He was bored to tears. I mean, most people, when they're bored, aren't crying. Although I've sat through a few lectures in my day of uh, continuing education that made me want to cry. And I, I suspect that over the years I've probably had some pretty bad sermons that made people cry. But uh, in general, when you say you're bored to tears, it just means you're really bored. It doesn't mean you are crying. Or don't let the cat out of the bag. And by the way, that one can be literal too. Uh, you sh- if you have a cat in a bag, by all means, please don't let him out. Uh, I threw that one in there for Z- Suzanne. But uh, anyway, uh, so figures of speech are, are a normal, natural uh, part of communication. And the biblical writers of Scripture were no different. They included in their writings, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, vivid images, peculiar ways of speaking cultural idioms and grammatical figures of speech. Um, David said a a person who follows God's word will be like a tree, but the wicked are like chaff. There's two similes right there in the beginning of uh, the book of Psalms. One of the ones that we used as a case study uh, some weeks ago was from the book of uh, Song of Solomon, where uh, in chapter two, verse one, the bride says that she is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys um, and she calls her lover a gazelle or a young stag climbing on the mountains well I mean obviously a literal interpretation and, and taking those words as literal reality would be absurd they are metaphors right and the illustration we used several weeks ago in our case study was to point out that Contrary to what you find in a lot of writings and in some of the hymns, you know, Lily of the Valley uh, and Rose of Sharon are not symbolic terms for Christ. There's nothing in the context that would lead us uh, to believe that. It's just a beautiful discussion going on uh, between uh, a bride and her lover. Um, So uh, you know, we see figures of speech uh, frequently, um, sometimes they make for interesting reading uh, especially when you go to apocalyptic literature like uh, Ezekiel and Revelation, and by the way, we're gonna after we finish with figures of speech, next on my agenda is to talk about genre or types of biblical literature, which is another fascinating uh, study that uh, I think you know most people don't really uh, think about. They pick up the Bible and just read it and don't give you know, any consideration to, am I reading poetic literature? Am I reading epistolary literature? Am I reading uh, you know, gospel narratives or historical narratives or prophetic literature? Um, um, so sometimes, again, especially in apocalyptic type literature, you know, it can be really fascinating reading, but what do they mean? The goal, again, is to accurately handle the word of God, to cut straight. To cut a straight line, uh, you know, uh, as we talked about uh, in Second uh, Timothy two fifteen, to the meaning of the, the passage, and uh, not get sidetracked by fanciful interpretations and uh, you know um, mistaken uh, oversight when we forget, uh, you know, uh, that something is a figure of speech or don't even consider that. Uh, so how do we know when to read the Bible? literally, in a literal correspondence to reality versus figures of speech. Well, we'll start with the macro principle and then I'm going to give you uh, some of the ten rules uh, that uh, Dr. Hendricks came up with that really have stuck with me for many years and I think are uh, really helpful. They're kind of instinctive now and should be instinctive and intuitive to most people, but if you've not really thought about it, maybe they aren't. But the big picture is pretty simple. When the plain sense makes common sense, seek no other sense, uh, lest you end up with nonsense. Uh, Clever little saying, but it really says it all. Uh, Don't go looking for figures of speech and symbolic, mystical, spiritualized meaning behind every word on the page. Let the words speak. But when a figure of speech is employed, pay attention and, and make sure you therefore interpret the meaning in light of the figure of speech. Um, So, when we talk about how to, you know, figure out the figurative, which is Howard Hendricks clever way of titling this section in his book, figuring out the figurative, uh, we're talking about what happens when the plain sense does not make common sense. I mean, are there any rules that govern, you know, when we should interpret odd expressions figuratively and when we should take them uh, literally? So let's, uh, let's walk through these. Um, uh, number one is use the literal sense unless there's some good reason not to. In other words, this is the default. This is the default. And this should be clear from what we've been uh, talking about. Um, in reading the Bible, we have to assume that the writers were using language in its normal, plain, natural face value sense. That they weren't, writing in code. They weren't, you know, cryptologists trying to outsmart the Russians during the Cold War with these secret codes. They were just communicating truth and they were doing it in its basic, normal sense. So, you know, a good example of when people violate this rule is the, the book, the passage we mentioned earlier, the Song of Solomon. You know, people, because it's so flowery and such a beautiful love letter, people have you know, come up with all kinds of fanciful spiritualized interpretations, but why there's nothing whatsoever in the words on the page that should trigger us thinking this is some type of spiritual representation uh, of of Christ. Um, so um, use the literal sense as the default, unless there's some good reason not to. Number two, use the figurative sense when the passage tells you uh, to do so again. Some figures of speech are telegraphed, um, you know, for example, when you come across a dream or a vision, which is quite frequent uh, in the Old Testament, not quite as much in the New Testament, but you see it some there, too. Uh, well, then, of course, you're dealing with symbolic language because that's the nature of dreams. Um, and so in Genesis 37, that uh, when, with Joseph's dream, it's clear that he's talking about things that are going to happen in the future, right? And the same is true of Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis 41 and Daniel's prophetic visions that we see in the book of Daniel. So use the figurative sense when the passage tells you to. Uh, number three, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Uh, you know, Hendricks often would, would say when a student would ask a question, Uh, Well, this is where you need some sanctified common sense. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it's true. Uh, You know, we we have to use basic common sense when interpreting the scripture because it's written using uh, language. God does not, you know, speak to us in code language, in this mystical language. He doesn't uh, tell us things with the purpose of confusing us. He tells us things... To be clear, and we talked about the perspicuity of Scripture and that principle, that theological principle, uh, uh, some time ago in this, in this series, uh, meaning that all the Bible can be understood. It's not something you have to have some divine special revelation to be able to then pass on to other people. So, uh, for example, uh, if you look at Revelation, uh, where we read, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Okay, well, what does that mean, talking about Christ? Uh, Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, Revelation 1.16. Well, I mean, it would be absurd indeed to think that Jesus in bodily form had a physical sword that he had swallowed proceeding halfway down his throat and halfway out of his mouth. So, here's a clue that this is a figure of speech. So what that should prompt you to do and how, where this comes into play with how to study the Bible and, and and how to read and understand the Bible is it should then prompt you to, to dig a little deeper and, and do some cross-referencing and compare scripture with scripture and see what this notion of a two-edged sword uh, really means. Um, and so uh, you know this is an example of where you should use the figurative sense if a literal meaning is impossible or absurd. Number four, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning would involve, involve something immoral. Um, So watch this in John chapter six, which is full of metaphors about the atoning death of Jesus Christ. Uh, Great passage. Um, In fact, one of the clearest statements of the gospel is in John six when Jesus says in verse 47, verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. And of course, in the context, he's talking about believing in me as the sacrifice for sin um, but notice what he says in uh, john six fifty three and following truly truly i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourself well clearly that's a figure of speech he's he's using a metaphor there because to literally eat jesus and drink his blood would be, would turn you into cannibals which the old testament law you know, explicitly forbid, and it was repulsive in the Old Testament. And none of his listeners took it that way, obviously, because their very response was puzzlement. What does this mean? How can we eat the flesh, they, they said. So they were grappling with the problem of interpretation, like we sometimes do, or at least should, when something kind of raises an eyebrow. Um, Others in the context, after Jesus said that, said, this is hard teaching, you know. Uh, So clearly he was speaking figuratively. They did not take it literally. They weren't sure what the meaning of the figure was, which it's very clear in the context that by eat my flesh and drink my blood, he meant believe in me. That was a metaphor for faith, the only way in which someone uh, can be uh, Say So, use the figurative sense if a literal meaning would involve something immoral. Similarly, uh, or no, I, I'm getting ahead of myself uh, here. Use the figurative sense if the expression is an obvious figure of speech. Okay, so this one is why we have spent so much time going through common figures of speech used in scripture, and we're going to go through them even more next week when we do a class exercise, because you have to be able to identify them, and they ought to jump off uh, the page at you. So comparisons using like or as uh, are easy ones to spot because those are similes uh, as we talked about. So for example in Proverbs 11:22 22 uh, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. <laughs> well I mean that should be self-evident that he's using a figure of speech there called uh, simile. Um, and then number six is use a figure of speech if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the context and scope of the passage. Use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation would go contrary to the context and scope of the passage. So take Revelation chapter 5, that beautiful passage. Uh, Every time I read chapters 4 and 5, I just get goosebumps as I think about this great moment in heaven when they're uh, describing the lamb whose blood was shed and is therefore worthy, worthy is the lamb to, to open the scrolls of God's wrath. But it says, uh, we, we talks about the lion of the tribe of Judah. So is the writer talking about a literal beast? Uh, no, if you look in the context, it's a, it's a clear figure of speech describing a scene in heaven and also comparing scripture to scripture, you begin to see that that's a common Phrase used to refer to the long-awaited uh, Messiah. So always remember, and this was something that Hendricks used to say: figuring out the figurative. Uh, one of your in, in figuring out the figurative, one of your best guides is always the context. So context is king. We we talked about the concentric circles of context earlier on in this uh, series. Number seven: use the figurative if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the general character and style. Uh, of the book, um, so let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, when reading poetic literature and wisdom literature like Psalms and Proverbs, they frequently make use of flowery figures of speech. Uh, for example, Psalm 63:7, "In the shadow of Thy wings I sing for joy." Well, again, that's a you know example of a um, zoomorphism, attributing uh, animal features to God. Um, So be aware of the type of literature and the style of the book. But conversely, you could make the same mistake the other direction. Uh, Think of uh, the the book of Acts when when historian Luke is just describing in in detail historical events. And and sometimes people try to read into it some type of hidden meaning. Uh, For example, in Acts 28.2, when uh, Luke and his traveling companions uh, were kept warm by a fire, there's no reason to inject symbolism into the context uh, because there's nothing in Luke's style of writing that mean, that indicates or in the immediate context that he's using fire as some kind of code word for, for something else. Uh, so use the figurative if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the general character and style of the book. Number eight, and I'm going to try, I know we're coming up on the end of the hour, but I want to try to finish these 10 rules so that next week we can really dive into uh, putting this to use and do some uh, in-class uh, look at several passages of scripture. So number eight, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation goes contrary to the plan and purpose of the author. Again, context is crucial. You know, sometimes people will pull a verse you know, out of context to support some view, and it sounds it sounds possible in isolation. You know, they'll make a statement, and then they'll tag a verse with it and say, "Such and such is true because this is what the Bible says." And you go, "Hmm, well that that kind of sounds uh, uh, sounds true." But then you go look at the context, and and it, it just doesn't fit. Uh, something's out of place, and so and it's a good habit when interpreting Scripture to always. Uh, you know, look at the bigger picture. Remember, the smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance, uh, you know, of error. Um, so, you know, for example, going back to Psalm 1, uh, a person who delights in God's law will be like a well-watered tree. And verse 3, adds, whatever he does will prosper. Well, people have the health, wealth, and prosperity gang has pulled that verse out of context and said, see, God wants to prosper us. We're all supposed to be rich. Uh, if you're not rich, it's because you don't have enough faith. There must be something wrong. But God's plan is to prosper you. Psalm 1, three. Well, the problem is that's not at all what's going on in the context. He's talking more about the quality of life uh, under God's blessing as we study His word and stay close to Him, not physical, material, financial uh, blessings. Uh, number nine. Uh, use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation involves a contradiction of other Scripture. Remember the analogy of faith. We talked about that as one of the 24 rules of interpretation. Scripture best interprets itself. So, if a if you're if a literal understanding of a passage uh, would cause you to come to a conclusion that is directly contradicted elsewhere in Scripture, then that can't be interpretation. It must be a figure of speech. So. Uh, An example that uh, Howard Hendricks uses in his book, which I thought was a good one, is uh, when Jesus told the disciples, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that was a plain and simple figure of speech. It's It's a very fascinating image, and there's been some strained attempts to make it mean something other than what it does people have tried to connect it to some of the gates in the temple walls that that's completely bogus uh the, the the word there for needle in the greek was just a common sewing needle and of course a camel was a huge beast one of the largest beasts in the you know in the in their their culture and so he was coming up with a with this word picture to say that it's it's hard for Uh, you know, people to for rich people to get saved. Um, So now if we were to take that literally, we might say Jesus is saying because obviously a a camel can never go through the eye of a sewing needle that Jesus was saying rich people can never be saved Uh, or, you know, wealth uh, would, uh, you know, preclude you from getting into heaven. Um, But that contradicts scripture elsewhere where Paul, for example, talks about the dangers of wealth when he's speaking to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Uh, Remember, he says the love of money is the root of all evil, but he never says that wealth will categorically exclude you from uh, the kingdom. Um, But if you were to take just this passage in Mark 10, it's actually in all three synoptic gospels about the camel going through the eye of a needle, and that's all you had, you you might conclude, well, rich people just simply can't get uh, into heaven. But Jesus was using an extreme comparison to make a point. One scholar paraphrased this statement by Jesus as, quote, It is easier to thread a needle with a great big camel than to get into the kingdom of God when you're bursting with riches. Right? So, uh, you know, the disciples reacted in amazement because in their culture, they thought wealth was directly tied to righteousness and it was a sign of their uh, righteousness. You think of You know, Job in the Old Testament, who was before Satan attacked him, was quite wealthy because he was such a righteous man. Or Abraham or Solomon's another example. Um, But Jesus' point was that salvation is totally God's work. And you can't get into heaven based on your wealth. He wasn't saying that rich people can't get saved. So uh, that's an example where, you know, people come up with an interpretation that is contrary to scripture and similarly and finally here number 10 use a figurative sense if a literal interpretation would involve a contradiction in doctrine of course that flows from you know contradicting the bible in other passages uh, but uh, think of first corinthians chapter 3 where paul says in verses 16 and 17 do you not know that you are the temple of god and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. In the context the, the temple that Paul was referring to there is the local church in Corinth. Uh, there are two passages in 1 Corinthians where Paul uses temple as a metaphor. One is for the local church in chapter three, and the other in chapter six is uh, referring to individual uh, believers. Uh, so again, it's a metaphor. Sometimes temple means he uses that to describe our body where the Holy Spirit takes a presence. But in first Corinthians three, he's talking about the church, but back to the verse, he basically is saying, um, that, you know, in this severe language, you know, you'll if you, if you, uh, if you cause division or disruption or otherwise offend offense in the local church, then. God will destroy you. I mean, it's one of the strongest warnings in the New Testament against taking the church lightly and somehow causing problems in it. Uh, but Paul wasn't saying that here, anything about one's eternal destiny or that if you, uh, if you cause a problem in the church, you're gonna lose your salvation. Uh, that would be a contradiction in the teaching of scripture on eternal security. So use the figurative sense if a literal interpretation would involve a contradiction in Scripture. And here all that Paul was saying is that, you know, you're, if you cause problems, then uh, you're going to come under strict discipline. And indeed, there were a lot of people in the Corinthian church that were misbehaving, upsetting the, the unity of the body and causing problems. And Paul says, watch out, um, right? Just as, you know, defiling the temple, uh, you know, brings strict judgment, so too does causing problems in the church. So uh, that's kind of where we'll stop for tonight. Uh, next week, we'll, we'll uh, talk about uh, you know, the, some more figures of speech and just basically spend some time going through examples and trying to identify them. And I'm sure that'll lead us to uh, chase a few rabbits and do some, some sort of ad hoc Bible study on the fly as we go through it. But thanks for joining me for the live stream uh, tonight. Uh, We'll have the video posted here uh, in the next hour, and it'll be available uh, at the Not by Works website as well as at the Plum Creek uh, Chapel website. So God bless you, everyone. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you on Sunday.